We're going to look at a couple passages this morning, and I'll abbreviate a little bit. A couple passages, so have your Bible ready. Let's start Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13. I want to ask a question right at the outset, and I want each of us to ask ourselves this question. Um, and it's a question that we need to answer honestly. We need to answer it honestly because the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us today and He wants to encourage us. This is going to be an encouraging study today. So here is the question. When people think of you, when people think of you, which word would they use to describe you? Would they say you are an encourager or a discourager? When people think of you, are you an encourager or a discourager? Now words have great power, so what we say, how we say it, why we say it, the, the purpose of what we're trying to do will either strengthen or it will dishearten. And we're going to look at that in a couple of minutes. But, but this sense of encouragement or discouragement doesn't just apply to our words. It also applies to our overall disposition, our overall outlook on life. And really the second and most important aspect of the evaluation when people look at us and they say, are you an encourager or a discourager, really relates to our spiritual disposition and our spiritual outlook. So are you a person who is clearly strong in their faith, who is boldly and fearlessly uh, dependent on the Lord, who's, who's humbly obedient to the Lord, who's, whose outlook, a disposition, spiritual character, spiritual posture is one of encouragement? Or are you someone who struggles to trust the Lord, who's, who's kind of chronically wavering between hope and fear, and, and kind, of, kind of not really solid, not really strong in your alignment with the Lord? You see, our spiritual posture, our spiritual, um, really, perspective on the faithfulness of God, the sufficiency of God, which we just heard in that testimony about the faithfulness of God, the sufficiency of God, our, our posture on that, our perspective on that, has a very great impact, not only on our own faith, but also on people who are around us. And when we look at this study this morning, we're going to contrast two different ways in which we speak and in which we carry ourselves. And really, I, I, as I've studied through this, I don't think there's really a middle ground. I think we are one or the other. And, and as this reveals itself, it reveals itself throughout the day, how we talk, how we carry on, how we approach situations that challenge us. When Lee and Karen got into that crisis, they didn't break down, they didn't curse God, they didn't fall apart, they didn't panic they prayed, right? They started calling on the Lord. They started trusting the Lord. The first response was, we need help. And before they even made a phone call, they called on the Lord. And when you have that posture and you have that perspective, not only does that change your faith, but it also impacts people around you. And we're going to see clear evidence of that this morning in Numbers chapter 13, because this is where the 12 spies make their first trip into the promised land to kind of scope out how it looks and to see what they're facing. So start in chapter 13, and let's go all the way down to verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, which is the desert, and then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. 
How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or do they have fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Now if you uh, go back a couple pages, chapter 8 to 10 tell us that this was the second year of the second month after they left Egypt, okay? So get the timeline. Second year of the second month, it takes place after the incident at Sinai, after the golden calf, after they rebelled against the Lord. And then in chapter 9, you see that the Lord comes and he indwells the tabernacle. He strengthens them. He reminds them of his presence. And then in chapter 11... After God has helped them, after God has been with them, after God's encouraged them, chapter 11's a mess. Because everybody starts complaining. In verse 1, the people complain, and the Spirit says they became like those who complain about adversity in the presence of the Lord. What a statement that is. That's another message for another day. In verse 11 of chapter 11, Moses complains, and he kind of accuses the Lord. Hey, you're not, you're not really treating us fairly. So God provides quail for them to eat, showing he's gracious, showing he's sufficient, showing there's really no reason why they should doubt him, that he's going to provide. But by chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron, Aaron was the high priest, they're complaining. And they're saying it's not fair that Moses gets all the attention and Moses is the only one that hears from the Lord and we're bitter about it and God strikes them with leprosy. So, so you've got God appearing, God giving them his presence. They're on their way to the promised land. It's only year two. They're getting there. And everybody starts griping. Everybody starts complaining. Everybody starts being ticked off. And God says, no, no, wait a second. <laughs> What are you doing? See, the Spirit's showing us that the whole environment was toxic. The whole environment was, was discouraged and negative. And that's such an important spiritual insight for us right at the outset today. Because the environment we live in and the environment we provide for other people has impact. That's why it's so important for each of us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and then to be around other believers. So we need to examine how we're living. We need to examine how we are communicating. What do our kids see and hear from us? What do believers around us see and hear from us? What do people that are marginal, that are kind of religious but not really sure? What do people that don't know the Lord at all, that, that hate the Lord, what do they see and hear in us? Is there a culture of negativity and complaining and fear and anxiety and doubt and faithlessness? Is, is that, when people look at Paul Rhodes, are they saying, wow, that guy's a downer. Like, he's always discouraged. He's complaining. He's griping. He's critical. He's just, there's, there's just negative. Or do they witness strength and, and optimism and confidence and prayer and boldness and faith? You see, there's really not a middle ground on this. We're, we're either projecting that, that we just aren't really content and that God's not really sufficient for us, or we're projecting that the Lord is everything. 
when we're here with the body. This is a place of great power and great encouragement and great strength. I know I feel stronger after hearing that testimony this morning, that, that God is sufficient, that God met the Isons at their house on Douglas, that those EMTs came, but the Lord was already working. And then you get to the hospital, and there's no record of anything. The guy's bleeding out. But, but God met them. So how do we convey that to people? This place should be a place of power, encouragement. Thursday night, we had such an awesome service at prayer meeting. It was a place of encouragement and power and strength. And the Bible says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. we got to be careful this summer that we don't let the weather and our hobbies and vacations and, and, and just I'm just tired take us away from being here. And that happens also when you, when you get around people that discourage you. And we felt that three or four years ago, even here at the church. We had some stuff going on. And, and Julie and I had Sundays where we're like, we don't even want to go. And we're in charge. Because it negatively impacts you, right? You get in a situation where you're like, I just, I don't want to be around that. Now, look at the evidence of that in the text. Go back to Numbers 13. Because even though Israel has a history of lack of faith and pessimism and rebellion, the, the Lord still says, I'm taking you to the land. And Moses says, hey, go up and scope out the land. Go, go, go deal with this. Let's go find out what we've got. Now, I want you to be very clear because the Lord really impressed this in my heart. Look at his instructions in the verses we just read, 17 to 20. There is nowhere where Moses says, go in and see if we can take the land. Go in and see if it's even possible, guys. We don't know what we're facing. We, we, we've got all kinds of unknowns. So, so we're going to send 12 of you, and you guys go in and see if we can do this. He says, I want you to go in and find out what it looks like for when we go in. Big, big difference. Get a lay of the land. Find out what it's like. What are the people like? How many are there? What, what, what are we facing? What kind of opposition is there going to be? And, 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 but even better, don't, don't, guys, don't stress about that so much. Go in and find out how good the land is. Tell me, come back and give us a report on how faithful and true the Lord is in giving it to us. And look at his last instruction in verse 20. Bring back some fruit. Bring back some fruit. Come on, let's, let's see how much God has prepared for us, how much God has blessed us. This is not a blind leap of faith. This is not like, wow, I hope we can do this. They have at least seven convincing pieces of evidence prior to this that tell them God's doing this. We're strong. We're strong in the Lord. God's going to provide this for us. All the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to develop you, and I'm going to bless you. And he sends them a deliverer in Moses who comes right to Egypt to bring them out. And he gives them his presence every day with the cloud and the pillar of fire at night. And he indwells the tabernacle. And he says, I'm going to give you practical evidence that, that I'm going to help you. The whole reason you got out of Egypt was to go there. I didn't just release you to wander. I released you to go to the promised land. And I'm going to give you proof every day. And don't forget those miracles, right? I led you out of Egypt, ten plagues. I led you through the Red Sea. I gave you water and bread in the wilderness. I provided for you every day. But just in case, Israel, just, just in case you forget, look back at verse 2. He says, 
just a reminder, I am going to give the land to the sons of Israel. There's no doubt, there's no question, there's no equivocation, there's no uncertainty. He is going to give them the land. He sent Moses, he brought them out, he miraculously led them, he told them they're headed toward there. It's only year two. And he says again, before they send the spies, it's your land. It's your land, I'm giving it to you. So these men, look at it, they go to spy it out. And the Lord specifies in verse 2, one man from each tribe, they're to be leaders. Verse 3 says they're the heads of the sons of Israel. And I want you to look at their names. I never looked at the names before. I knew Joshua and Caleb. But look at the names. Shamua, Shaphat, Caleb, Igal. We almost named Matthew Igal. It was very close. Also, Hosea, who verse 16 tells us was called Joshua by Moses. Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sethur, Nabi, and Guel. I did pretty well, right? Pastor did all right. Twelve spies. Here are their names. The Holy Spirit intentionally lists them. He says, these are their families. These are their tribes. I want you to be on record with knowing who these 12 are. Because two, Joshua and Caleb, are going to be encouragers. And the other 10 are going to give a bad report. So let's list the names right now. Guiel and Shamua and Shaphat and Palti and Gadi. I want you to know those names. 2,000, 4,000 years later, I want you to know those names. I want you to read those names in Wisconsin because I want you to understand two gave a good report and 10 were discouragers. Now they go in, look at the report, verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word of them to the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. Everything is good. End of verse 26, right? Everything's great. Then they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Stop right there. Don't keep talking. Nevertheless, uh-oh, that's a bad word. That's a negative word. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. Okay, that's expected. They settled the land. The cities are fortified. Well, of course, they don't have open doors. They're large, good. Moreover, we just saw the descendants of Anak there. That was a difficult tribe. Okay, Amalek is living in the land of Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites are in the hill country. Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Okay, still, we're good. Verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Good for Caleb. He said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Because the Lord said we would in verse 2. But, oh, I don't like that word. The men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people we saw are the men of great size. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, these were giants and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and we were in their sight. 
After 40 days, they come back, they meet with the congregation, they bring the fruit, and they say, okay, it does flow with milk and honey. Now, that's not an accidental phrase because the Lord had specifically said the land of Canaan will be a land flowing with milk and honey. So they are confirming what God said is right, what God said is true. It's exactly what we said it was going to be. So we're good. But, oh, no, no, no. Nevertheless, that's the word of a doubter. We can't do it. Now, these 10 insert negativity and pessimism. They say well, the people are strong, okay? A and they fortified, okay? And they're descendants of Anak, all right? But they're still, as of verse 29, there's still nothing that should have defeated them because they had the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord said, this is yours. You have his promise. You have proof he's trustworthy. But, but, but now there becomes this kind of inference of doubt in verses 28 and 29. So Caleb, who I'm sure is standing there dumbfounded with his mouth open, looking at these guys that he just spent 40 days with going, we just saw the same thing. Like, why, why, are, you, why are you all of a sudden showing some hesitation? No, everybody, shh, listen, listen. We need to take possession. God said this is ours. We went in. It's nothing that God can't handle. We can do this. Everybody stop complaining. Let's go take it. But the ten then become even more entrenched in their negativity, and they say, we're not able we can't do this, but we have the word of the Lord, but, but we can't do this. The people are too strong for us. There's no faith, there's no confidence in God's word, but, but it gets worse because look back at verse 32. Here's what really becomes damaging. It says, they gave out to the people a bad report. Oh, this land, oh man. It devours the people. Well, then how are there six nations that are occupying it right now? Well, well, they're, 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 they're too powerful. And, and, and if that wasn't enough, look at the verse. It says they start to spread discouragement among the people. And that steals confidence and it steals courage. You ever been around somebody who just is negative? They just constantly spread discouragement. And you know what happens when you spend time around somebody who constantly spreads discouragement? It starts to work. And it quickly starts to, to get into your spirit and you start to lose hope and confidence and your mood goes from positive to chronically defeated because discouragement is like a highly infectious head cold. It just spreads and does damage. And it lays you out and it discourages you. And we see that if you go to chapter 14, just glance at it. We won't read it. The spies' discouraging report, immediately, chapter 14, verse 1, it leads to rebellion. 
the congregation starts to go down the drain of discouragement and despondency, and they're emotionally wrung out. And look at the verses. They start to cry, and they grumble, and they fall into self-pity, and there's some illogical regret. Oh, we should have stayed in Egypt, and we should go back. And then by verses four, verse 4, they say, we need a new leader. We, we need somebody else. I mean, look how quickly it spirals from Caleb's word in 1330 to chapter 14, verse 1. It, it, it powerfully starts to influence the people, and, and those damaging words start to infect them. And this belief in this false report, which was a lie and a slander, it's so bad and it's so offensive to the Lord and it's a sin against the Lord that God says all right fine we're in year two you're going to wander for 38 more because you didn't trust me you didn't believe my word you were unwilling to take my promises and be secure in them so every single person that is standing here right now before we get to the promised land, you're going to die. Only two will not die, and that's Joshua and Caleb. And by chapter 26, 38 years later, every one of them was gone. How many know God keeps his word? I'll take you. The land's yours. Go look at it. Get ready. You can be there in days. Oh, no, 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 people are too big. No, can't do it. It's going to be too tough. The land swallows the people. And then there's murmuring. And then there's talk in the tents. And I can't believe, I don't know what Joshua and Caleb are thinking. There's no way we can do that. And the negativity starts to spread and spread and spread and spread and spread. Do you see how powerful and damaging words of discouragement can be. And remember, this is all driven by poor theology. It was based only on what they saw and felt. And listen, when those two things are our parameters, it will always produce weak faith. When we go by what we see, when we go by what we feel, not by the facts, not by God's word, that will never, ever, ever, ever produce courageous faith or, or spiritual strength because it contradicts the very definition of faith in Scripture. And it will never create emotional and intellectual and physical strength because those cannot exist without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We are far too weak and far too fragile and we're subject to emotions and discouragement. And if you want proof of that, just look at the news in the last week at the two celebrity suicides. Highly successful people and yet they both reached a point where they said, I can't do it anymore. Now, this is interesting, not in a good way. It's interesting from a sociological, spiritual standpoint. Suicide is becoming more prevalent in our culture, especially among celebrities. And I heard statistics this week, uh, uh, the demographics in our country, that now the highest rate, the highest demographic of suicide in our country is middle-aged people. 
because they've been beaten down by life and they've been beaten down by relationships and they don't see a way to contentment, especially without the Lord. And society's not helping because as we said last week, the discourse is so vile and damaging and discouraging and divided and judgmental and accusatory that when you try to look for some kind of support from the culture, it's not there. So listen, you and I, like Joshua and Caleb, need to be dissenting voices and we need to present truth and we need to present hope so people will be encouraged that this is not all there is, that your problems will not wear you down because the Lord can help you. But when we allow the spread, like, like the Israelites, just to go through the camp, and there's discouragement, and there's fear, and anxiety, and there's worry, when, when all that happens, it starts to drag us down. Now, there is an alternative to this. So turn over to Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. And we're going to look just at two verses real quick, and we'll conclude. Two verses that ascribe a different way of doing it. And we're going to look at a man who was known as the son of encouragement. Boy, I'd like to have that word said of me. Paul Rhodes, the son of encouragement. Wouldn't that be an awesome, awesome title? Look at Acts 13, 43. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now go over to chapter 15, verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now let's, let's try to get a little bit of background here real quick. Barnabas has less than 20 verses about him in the Bible. But they're significant because he is described as the son of encouragement and he is a sharp contrast to the negativity of the ten spies. Now we see in Acts 13, that first passage, that Paul and Barnabas are speaking to a group of Jewish and Gentile new believers. And they're urging them, in verse 43, to continue in God's grace. Now why is that important? Why does that group of people get mentioned by the Holy Spirit? Well, one verse before, in verse 42... We see that the devout Jews, the ones who rejected Jesus, they had stormed out of the synagogue because they didn't like what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. They were teaching about the failure in the history of the Jews. In other words, Numbers 13, that they were talking about how the Jewish nation had not trusted God and how God then had sent Jesus to, to come and, and save us from our sins, including the Jews. Well, the devout Jews, the ones who lived in the synagogue, they were ticked off. They stormed out. They were angry. So Paul and Jar Barnabas sit with this group of new Jewish and Gentile believers who are now facing this negative environment. They're facing pushback from the Jews. They're facing pressure. You should not believe these men. They're, they're crazy. You shouldn't listen to them. You should follow Judaism. And they're having to make a decision. What are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the negative report or are we going to believe the encouraging report? And Paul and Barnabas don't go into worry mode and say, well, guys, you know, maybe lay low a little bit and just kind of hang out. They're pretty, they're pretty angry right now, so maybe don't be quite as demonstrative. They say, nope, we're not going to listen to them because they're wrong. 
We're going to encourage you. We want you to be strong in your faith and in your resolve. And they encourage, look at the verse, they encourage the believers. They urge them to continue in the grace of God. Now you go to chapter 15, and Paul and Barnabas have traveled from Antioch to Jerusalem because there was a problem with the disciples. Some of the disciples were being influenced by the Jews who were saying, look, we'll, we'll kind of accept the Gentiles as part of the body, but in order for the Gentiles to be accepted by us, they're all going to have to be circumcised. In other words, they're going to have to follow and adhere to Jewish law in order to be recognized by us. And the disciples, the original apostles, they, they start to say, you know what, that's probably not a bad idea. Maybe for the sake of harmony and understanding and tolerance, we should just, we should ask that. It's not that big an ask. Gentiles, maybe you guys should just be circumcised and we'll just kind of be one big happy. And Paul shows up, because he was not timid, right? And he literally gets in Peter's face. Now, Paul was not an impressive guy. He was short and bald and not very attractive to look at. And Peter, I imagine, was strong and burly because he was a fisherman, right? So just kind of let's just picture that. So here's Peter, who's the dominant apostle up into Acts 10. And here's Paul, who's a former Pharisee who killed Christians, who's kind of a hothead, who, who now is the minister to the Gentiles. And there's still some lingering junk there. And Paul gets right up in Peter's face and says, you're wrong. You need to cut it out. All of you, you're all wrong. Salvation is by faith alone. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to follow the law because the law is dead. Jesus fulfilled it. So stop telling the Gentiles that they have to be circumcised because the Jews are wrong. I know, I used to be one. I used to be a Pharisee. I was the top Pharisee. There's nobody with credentials better than me. And I'm telling you, they are wrong. And like being in a trance, the apostles kind of wake up and go, wait a second, you're right. You're, you're right. We shouldn't ask that. But here's why I take you to this passage. Look at verse 12. I never noticed it before this week. The Holy Spirit has Luke write that all the people kept silent. You there, verse 12? And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating with signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. Did you catch it? The order is reversed. From chapter 11 on, it's always Paul and Barnabas. But in this one verse, Acts 15, 12, it's Barnabas and Paul. Now that is not accidental. So ask yourself, why is it reversed? They're teaching theology... Nobody's more dogmatic and passionate about theology and about justification by faith than the Apostle Paul. So in this moment, why is Barnabas even listed? I mean, he should be sitting back on a chair going, go on, you got it. Paul, Paul, I'll, 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 I'll sit back here and drink some water and some pita bread. You just take it. Because this is theology. This is your area. I'm the son of encouragement. You go. So interesting. The Holy Spirit says Barnabas and Paul were relating it. Now, why? I am convinced. I'm convinced that's because the situation was so tense and so volatile that Barnabas sensed the need to take the lead in making sure the environment was one of encouragement. He kept 
them focused that all of their heart and passion was for Jesus. Listen, guys, we all love Jesus, and we all trust Jesus, and we all serve Jesus. So while we're debating this critical point of theology that we have to get right or it is going to divide us, let me encourage you, listen, God has been doing amazing works among these Gentile believers. And you need to understand, I'm not the theologian, but you need to understand that's evidence they're already grafted into the body. Listen, listen, Paul, hold on a second, hold on a second. Listen, they are already part of the body. We don't need to have them circumcised. They're already believers. And as soon as Barnabas does that, it ends the debate. Now, when we take a role of encouraging, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of grace and a lot of patience. But to encourage, listen real quick, to encourage means to fasten yourself to somebody to strengthen them and fortify them. So the purpose is to build up, to strengthen them spiritually. And that has to be an intentional action. So if you'll indulge me for two more minutes, let's quickly list, just write these down, quickly list four practical ways that we can do this. If we're going to be intentional about encouraging, there are four ways to do it. Number one, we have to receive strength from the Holy Spirit. Through repentance, through prayer, through study, we have to receive strength from the Holy Spirit. You cannot minister to somebody. You cannot strengthen them if you are not strong in the Lord yourself. The Bible says, as the priests go the people. So if you're not strong, you can't lead somebody to be strong. So we've got to be humble and gracious and die to self and take intentional steps to get our heart right first. So receive strength from the Spirit. Second of all, Resist the urge, resist the urge to be critical and to find fault in others. Now, our default as human beings is self-serving and selfish. So criticism, putting people down, is humanly natural because it elevates us. It makes us feel superior. When I drive and get frustrated that somebody's not driving fast enough, the pride in my heart is saying, I'm a better driver than you. Get out of my way. I know what to do better than you do. Now, I'm being blunt. That's the pride of my heart. I pass it off as, well, I'm just in a hurry, and you're going, you know, 15 under the speed limit in the left lane, talking on your phone. Like, maybe you should be considerate and just see that I'm back here. But that's not what I'm thinking. Get out of my way. I know more than you. Our human nature, we have to resist that because we have a new nature. That's why number one is so important because it gives the discipline not to be critical. So restrain, strengthen the spirit, resist the urge to be critical. Number three, refuse to find the negative in the positive. Refuse to find the negative in the positive. Some people are skilled at finding that one uncooked piece of pasta in a delicious plate of spaghetti. You ever met somebody like that? Everything's good, but they find the negative. I'm going to tell you, that's, that's a huge discouragement when you're in a church 
Someone who doesn't like the music or the sermon's too long or it's too warm or the money should be spent differently or the money shouldn't be spent at all or we shouldn't do outreach. Ask any pastor that will take the wind out of your sails more than anything. And those people rarely volunteer and if they do, they act like they own the place. Now I am so grateful that that doesn't really exist right now at this church. But we got to guard against it. And we have to make sure that we are living right in our own lives and fight that tendency. Listen now, fight that tendency to find the negative and the positive. Fourth and last, recognize that others need to be built up. Look around you right now. Every single person in this room needs a spiritual and personal boost. Every one of us needs strength. And you and I need to take the lead to be a Barnabas, to encourage and strengthen and edify. And listen, there are a lot of ways we can do that. We can do that through our words. We can do that through handwritten notes or an email or a text. Just thinking about you today. As Karen said earlier, listen, and this, this struck my heart last night. When somebody says, will you pray for me? Don't say, yeah, I will. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll pray for you. No, stop right there and say, let's do it right now. Right now. Let's pray. Well, I don't know how to lead somebody in prayer. Well, then you better learn. Because you're being disingenuous. Say, I'll pray for you later, but you won't pray for them right now. They need it right now. They need a hug right now. They need you to put your arms on their shoulders and say, Lord, we're intercede. We're asking right now for you to work. There's power in that. Help each other out. This is the uniqueness of the body of Christ. This is what we do, and it's powerful. Let me give you one more verse. Write it down. Proverbs eleven twenty five. It says, he who refreshes others will be refreshed himself. He who refreshes others will be refreshed himself. We like to say at Harbor Rock that we're a place to be refreshed. So this is a good place to start. Let's become Barnabas. Let's become people who encourage and strengthen one another. Let's determine that this is going to be a ministry of encouragement because I'm telling you right now, the impact of that will be unbelievable. And we'll have strength to personally do the work of the Lord.